0: scripture for this evening is from the book of Job, chapter 38, verses 1 to 11, and that can be found on page 443 on the Blue Pew Bibles. Job 38, 1 to 11, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. This is the word of God. Have a seat. Please pray with me before we come to this passage. Father in heaven, as the evening uh, grows darker as we get uh, into this Advent season, um, we are reminded uh, of the darkness uh, into which your light shone. Uh, we are reminded, as we have already been reminded, uh, of uh, the years, the, the, the centuries uh, that your people Waited, uh, walking in darkness, uh, and we are grateful uh, to remember uh, that the light shone into that darkness, and that the darkness has not overcome it. Father, you know uh, the many forms that that darkness takes uh, in our lives. Father, you know the struggles uh, of each uh, person in this room, of each of each heart. Uh, you know the struggles uh, that are taking place in our families. Uh, Struggles at work, uh, struggles with health, struggles with technology, struggles with schooling, um, struggles in our neighborhood. Um, Father, you know uh, the many things that we uh, bear towards you um, and the anxieties, Uh, and we are grateful that your word uh, encourages us, uh, even commands us uh, to cast those anxieties before us and, and gives us this simple reason that you care for us. Uh, That is an amazing thing. We say it again and again when we come before you. It is amazing uh, that you uh, who have created the universe care uh, for your people, that you care for us enough uh, to give us your name, uh, to knit us together, uh, that you have cared for us enough to send your Son uh, into the world, uh, to pay the penalty for our sins, uh, to rise uh, to new life and and that life be breathed into us by your Spirit. Uh, Holy Spirit, thank you that you are here uh, with us now. Uh, we know, we say every week, uh, it is only uh, by your presence here, only by your work, um, that our worship service uh, means anything. On the one hand, um, that it would be pleasing to you, because we, we depend on you to give us hearts uh, that are capable um, of worshiping you, uh, and mouths capable of singing your praises. Um, And on the other hand, that it would have an effect on your people, that it would shape us and mold us. Um, Your word, uh, you have promised, never returns to you void, Um, but rather by the work of your Holy Spirit, uh, it makes us more and more uh, like your son, Jesus. Um, Father, uh, we are grateful uh, for these promises. We're grateful to have been reminded, reminded already today that you are a God who keeps your promises and we depend on that fully. Father, as we come uh, to this passage, I pray that the words in my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, something I remember saying um, last year uh, during the season of Advent Um, And something that I guess I was hoping would be completely irrelevant by now, but maybe not just yet, um, is that as we enter into this season of waiting, um, all of us uh, have been experiencing and are still experiencing uh, a waiting uh, and a longing uh, for something to be over, uh, for this pandemic to come to an end, for everything to be back uh, to normal. and, you know, the, the, the thing about that is that in waiting for that to be over, um, there's not a date that we can circle on the calendar. You know, it's not, like, it's not like Christmas Day, where you can circle December 25th and put an X on each day as it goes by and watch it dwindle down and, and know exactly how many days uh, are, are, are left. Um, there's a real uncertainty to it, and that's, and that's part of the pain. And that's part of the struggle. Uh, that's what makes it hard. Uh, is just not knowing. Um, But that makes it more, when you think about it, that makes it more like the kind of waiting that Israel experienced for all those centuries Um, because they didn't know the day or the time. Paul talks about Jesus coming in the fullness of time, but no one knew uh, what that would be, when, when that would come. And it makes it more like the waiting that we still experience. Um, As we've already said today, the season of Advent is not only a looking back uh, to the centuries of waiting for Jesus to come uh, as a baby, as an infant, um, in in silence and quiet and secret, Um, but it's also a reminder that we still wait for him to come again, Uh, this time with a trumpet, uh, this time full of glory. Uh, to set things right uh, for once and for all. It's a thing that we have been longing for um, since he ascended to heaven, right? His disciples looked up, waiting for him to come back, and were told he would come back one day in the same way that he had gone, but there would be a period of waiting. And the last words of the Bible, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And it's the cry of all of our hearts. Um, and we don't know exactly when um, that's that's going to be. Uh, and so maybe this season that we've been living to is is one way of one way in which God is preparing us for that, uh, helping us to remember uh, what we're what we're really uh, really waiting for. We are waiting ultimately at the end of the day. We're waiting for God to show up. Um, and so in this season of Advent, as we come. Uh, near to the end of our study in the book of Job, we're going to spend this season looking at when God showed up for Job. Um, this week, we're going to look at this passage that I read from Job 38, and, and we're going to spend the rest of this season looking at other uh, portions of these chapters where God speaks, where God responds uh, to Job, where he shows up and speaks out of the whirlwind. And we'll, in, in, in future weeks, we'll also pair it with some other um, Advent texts. Uh, to, to see how those, how those go together. Um, what I want us to see in this, in this passage, um, in this initial response that he makes to Job, um, is how there are three elements to it. The first one is a rebuke. Um, there is some edge, some rebuke, uh, to, what, to what God has to say uh, when he shows up. Um, but as we'll see, even that rebuke uh, is a gift of a gracious and loving God. Um, secondly there's an invitation and thirdly um, there's a love song there's a love song in creation um, what's on display I would say in this, in this passage we talk a lot about Psalm 62 uh, here in this, in this church it's been known as the CTK Psalm and you know it's, it's got that, um, that pair right at the end of it um, that talks about God uh, being uh, full of power and also abounding in steadfast love and as we've said often, a lot of our problems in life uh, stem from our inability to believe one or the other or both of those things. We, we struggle to believe that God is powerful enough to save us uh, or that He's loving uh, enough. Um, what I want us to see in this passage is that contrary to the usual, the, the, the common interpretation of this passage, oftentimes God's response as He parades creation before Job is sometimes seen as being an expression of pure power. This is who I am. This is how powerful um, I am. Um, I don't think that's the main thing that Job is in danger of forgetting, as we'll we'll see when we get into it. um, He knows that God is powerful. What he's struggling with is, is God really loving? Does God really love me? Um, What I want us to see is how this response that God makes to Job Um, is meant to answer that fear, uh, that doubt. That maybe God is is a God who's full of power, but maybe not abounding in steadfast love. So let's take it this. First of all, like I said, there is an edge. There is a bit of a a rebuke. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Um, I mean, that right there should stop and, and, and arrest us. I don't know what this scene was like. Um... But it doesn't sound like it was very calm or peaceful. Um, there's scholars that have wondered, you know, when, when God used to come to the garden and, and, and walk uh, in, the, in the cool of the day uh, with, with Adam and Eve, you know, was that calm and peaceful? Um, you know, or, or has there always been um, a whirlwind, um, a storm uh, accompanying God? Um, meeting with God is not something to be taken lightly. It never is in Scripture, right? Um, Whenever God shows up, people are diving uh, under the seats, you know, or running for the exits. I mean, even Peter, uh, in the boat with Jesus, when Jesus stills the storm, and Peter realizes just who he's standing next to, um, he's full of fear, right? He says, get away from me. A sinful man. Um, this is something that we sometimes don't remember about the Advent season. Um, that there is this edge to the idea that God is showing up. That God is coming. Uh, Advent is about Emmanuel, right? God with us. Um, and, and most of our uh, connections to that word Emmanuel, you know, come from songs like the one that we sang, um, you know, which is... Uh, which is calm, which is, which is soothing, which is um, uh, something that a lot of us regard with a, a sense of, of comfort. Did you know the first place in the Bible where the word Emmanuel appears um, is not exactly full of comfort? Um, in Isaiah 7, um, the prophet Isaiah goes to the king of Israel who's facing political threats, you know, from, from, from all sides. Um and is, is struggling to avoid resting all of his hope in alliances that he could make with other kingdoms nearby. And Isaiah says to him, ask of the Lord a sign. Ask the Lord to demonstrate his faithfulness to you. And the king says, oh, far be it from me. Um, but this is kind of false piety, because what's really going on is he knows he's going to make these alliances. He knows that that's where his, his real trust is going is to lie. Um, and Isaiah says, well, God will give you a sign, and the sign will be the virgin will be with child, and she'll bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, right? And in that context, to a king who is, who, is, who is deliberately choosing not to put his trust in God, but instead to put his trust in other nations and their armies, the sign of Emmanuel, of God showing up, of God being in the room, um, that's got an edge to it. This is not something uh, to be taken lightly. Job, throughout his speeches, throughout his responses, has asserted uh, his innocence and has refused the coherent system that his friends have offered. Remember, we, we, we talked about this. If friends have said... God is a God of justice, and so if you're suffering, it must be your fault. And and on the other hand, they say, God is a God that is so high and lifted up that you can't possibly demand uh, to be in his his presence. Um, And Job has consistently asserted, I am innocent, I don't deserve this, and I want to be in his presence. I want to get in front of him. Uh, In Job 23, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand uh, what he would say to me. As is so often the case, there's a half truth to what Job's friends have been saying. Um, God is high and lifted up, God is the creator, Job is a creature. Um, Job has no right to demand an audience uh, in, in, in front of God. What Job's friends are misunderstanding is not God's power uh, or his right. What they're misunderstanding is his disposition. They're misunderstanding his desire to draw near uh, to one who is afflicted, to one who's, who's broken hearted. When God does show up, as I said, there is this rebuke. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. There's even a hint of sarcasm in what he says, right? Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Um... Here's the fine line that Job has been walking. And I think it's a fine line that a lot of us find ourselves uh, walking with God uh, in the midst of suffering. On the one hand, because God is a God who keeps his promises, we can bank on his disposition to draw near. We can count on his promises to be present uh, in the midst of of pain and suffering. But there's a danger in demanding that God show up when and how we would want him to be there. The danger is that rather than receiving his presence as a gift, something that fosters a sense of gratitude in our hearts, we would instead demand that he would show up when and how we want him to, which is something that fosters resentment instead. Job's, or excuse me, God's rebuke of Job is graciously keeping him to the right side of that line. It's guarding him, on the one hand, from the resentment that could fester um, in in his life if he thinks that he can demand for God to show up when and how he wants him to. If he, if he imagines that he could relate to God as though Job were the master and God were the servant. This isn't how we relate uh, to God. One of the harder things that I think has to be said um, out of the book of Job. Um, if God were to show up and to give Job exactly what he wants, if you were to give him the explanation, we know that there is an explanation for what's been going on here, right? The reader knows this, Job doesn't. The reader knows about this conversation with Satan that took place. Um, God never tells Job about any of that. Why? Why? What would it do to Job um, if he knew that that's what had been going on the whole time? It would give Job something else to hang on to. It would mean that Job could keep hanging on to his innocence rather than hanging on to God alone. If Job's faith is a faith that is destroyed by suffering, then it calls into question whether he ever had faith in God at all, or whether instead he was relating to God only because of what God could give to him. In other words, if suffering destroys Job's faith, then it proves that Satan was right. And God isn't going to let that happen. God isn't going to give Job the explanation. And in the process, he's shaping him into exactly the kind of servant that Satan didn't believe Job could ever be. I I say that this is one of the harder things that has to be said out of the book of Job because how often has it been the case in your life in my life, that it's actually through suffering that God shapes us into the kinds of servants that he wants us to be, into the kind of men and women that we were made to be. And and, and as we've said repeatedly uh, throughout this, this, this series looking at Job, that doesn't make suffering a good thing. That doesn't mean that suffering has a place. All it means is that God can work good through it. It's a hard thing to see in this, in this book that when, when God finally shows up, he does so after Job has been through, the, through this horrendous experience, and that it's through that, it's in that, that he's shaping him uh, into his servant, one whose faith is being proven. Before he goes much further with the rebuke, though, he turns and issues an invitation. And this invitation is going to constitute most of of his response because it's the invitation of creation. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And, and, and he goes on, especially over the next two chapters, um, but really over the four, you know, 38 to 41 that constitutes the whole, the whole response, to present himself as the one who cares for the sky and for the sea, for the weather, for all these wild animals. And listen to the intimacy with which he describes his care for creation. Here's here's um, in chapter 39, verses 1 to 4. He says, Do you know when the, mo- when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill, and do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? The young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. I mean, he's describing aspects of these animals' lives that are very rarely seen by human beings. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's almost graphic in its in its intimacy that God is there for all of this, uh, caring uh, for 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 these for these animals, for the for the creation. What's God doing? What is the invitation um, that's that's here? Um, the perspective that God is giving Job on creation um, is one that can only come as a gift from the creator. It's not one that Job uh, could have uh, on on his own. Um, In fact, he was not there at the foundation of the earth. He is not there for the birthing of these wild goats. Um, Job lacks a perspective. One of the problems... um, with the ways that we wrestle with suffering in our lives is that we sometimes assume that we have the perspective to suss out whether it makes sense or not. In other words, we often fall into the trap of thinking that if I can't see a way for this suffering to be for my good, then there can't be any way for this suffering to be for my good. You say it out loud like that, and there's, there's, there's obviously some bad logic to that, right? Um, and yet, that's a really, really enticing way of thinking. If I can't see a way uh, for this to be for my good, then there just can't be any. God is, as it were, pulling back the lens, giving Job the wide angle, giving him the creator's eye view on, on all of creation. Um, it's, it's like he's... It's like he's inviting Job over uh, to, to go through like, the family album, like to, to, to go and sit through the slides. Um, I want to explain this a little bit. Okay, so like when I say like to sit through the slides, this is gonna date myself a little bit. Um, so when I was a kid, uh, my parents would invite people over to our house or, or we'd get invited over to their house, right? In order to look at slides, right? This was a thing people did. And, and, and what this meant was, you'd go over to their house, right? And, uh, you know, the dad would open up this, this, it was always the dad, the mom was usually slightly embarrassed by the whole thing. Um, you know, the dad would open up this screen, it was this rolled up piece of fabric that you owned for this purpose only, um, and, and you'd turn out the lights, and you'd put it, you'd have a, a projector, and into that you would insert slides. Now, I know you, you think of slides as being like, stuff in powerpoint right that just kind of comes up on a screen like no no i mean like physical like pieces of cardboard with translucent pictures put into them you'd you'd arrange them in it had a carousel it had a wheel that would turn you'd turn it on he'd have a clicker he'd hit the button and it would make this noise okay some of you remember this noise right it would go junk and there'd be a picture and it wouldn't be a very good picture. One, you know, his finger would be over the, the, the lens cap. Say, why are you know? You think why are you showing us these pictures? Because before digital photography, you had no idea. You just took the pictures you had, and you hoped that some of them came out. Um, and you would sit there, and you would look at the picture. You know, you'd say, "Okay, here's our. You know, we went to Yosemite, right? So here's a picture of Vernal Falls." And then he hit the button again, <laughs> and there's another picture. And you would do this. And you would look at pictures for a while. Um, you'd have a meal, you'd enjoy drinks. Like this was, this was how people used to look at pictures together. Um, you know what this means. This was a world where if you wanted to show people pictures, you had to invite them into your home. You didn't have to, but this was one of the ways you would do it. You would invite people into your home. You would clear time in your schedule. You would clear space in your place of residence. You would bring out food and drinks. And you would look at these pictures and you would talk about them. And, 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 and it was a way of valuing each other and valuing the experience. Right, this, is, this is a very far, this is far, far away from just like, Posting stuff and waiting for the likes to roll in. Um, But that gives you some sense of what it is that God is doing. Why is God showing Job all of these scenes of creation? The experience of going and sitting and looking at slides gives us some sense of of what this is like. Job, sit down. I have something to show you. This is going to take some time. This means something to me. These are things that I love. Um, And of course, the invitation is to remember, Job, you are part of this creation. It's not just the universe. It's not just the mountain goats. Eventually, we'll get to these enormous creatures, Leviathan, Behemoth, right? God loves and cares for every one of these. And Job, you are part of it. Job was right when he expressed that hope. You would call and I would answer. You would long for the work of your hands. He was right to hold out that hope. Um, What this reminds me of I was thinking about why why God would go to this trouble, like why he would want to show him all of this. And what I was thinking of was the experience that a lot of us have had as parents um, where for some reason you get into an argument with one of your children and, and, and your child looks at you and says, you don't love me, right? And when that happens, I don't know what that does to you when you hear one of your children say, you don't love me. For me, it's, it's, like, it's like that scene in Ratatouille you know, where the guy takes the sip of soup and suddenly he's transported back to his childhood and his entire life flashes before his eyes, like, just from the one sip of soup. Because you know, I hear, you don't love me, and, and it's like I'm back you know, remembering when I first met Leanne. And like, the, the dating, and the long-distance dating, and then finally that was end, and we got married. And then you get that wonderful news that you're expecting a child, and then there's the months of, of of pregnancy, which are, which are which are joyful and, and really hard, mostly for her. Um, and then and then the child is born. And and I remember when 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 our first child was born, um, there was a, there was this evening, just a couple nights after after Jacob was born, we were still in the hospital, um, and just for a couple seconds he stopped breathing, and he and he turned purple. Um, and we didn't know what was going on, and we were panicked and terrifying. And a nurse came in and picked him up and just kind of like, thunk, thunk, on his back a couple times, and he started breathing, it was over, you know, and and this was, you know, she'd seen seen four or five of these that day, I'm sure. Um, But for us, for me at least, it was this moment of panic, and I remember in that minute thinking, oh no. Um, Realizing that from that moment, I could never really be happy if this other creature, who's outside of myself, is happy. Realizing that suddenly my well-being is bound up uh, in, 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 in someone else. Um, wonderful terrifying feeling. You know, and then, and, then, and then you're thinking through like, you know, all of the, the nighttime feedings and, and then get, they get older and they start... You know, saying no and, and, and having opinions and becoming their own person, and, and you just you give and you love because that's what you do, you know? and you think, what else am I made for? Um, and then it all builds up to this moment, and now he's in front of you, and he's saying, you don't love me. And you say, how could I even possibly begin to respond to that? Like, how could I possibly... What would I need to show you? I'd have to take you back and show you all of this, even to begin to convey how much I love you. And if that's true for a parent and their child, how much more so for our creator? I think one of the reasons God is showing Job all of creation is because he has to show him at least that much to get across to him how much he loves him. Even these last verses that we read contain this love song. There's an invitation to Job. But then listen to, what, listen to what he says. Listen to what God says to the sea. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? And I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said... Thus far you shall come, and no farther, and here shall your proud proud waves be stayed. On the one hand, this is an expression of God's capacity to limit the sea, to limit chaos. Um, But again, this isn't really about his power. Um, You go back to what Job has already said about God. Job knows that God is sovereign. Job knows that God is powerful. He doesn't need to be reminded Um, of how powerful he is. What's in question here is God's goodness. And what's beautiful here is that instead of just saying, I tell the sea where to go, he tells Job, Job, I speak to the sea. He doesn't just impose his will on it. He says to the sea, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Bradley and I have have mentioned this one scholar that we've gained so much from, uh, Eleanor Stump, um, who talks about how in the book of Job, we see God speaking to the creation in the second person. Um, Not just speaking about the creation, not just imposing his will, but speaking to it, speaking it into existence. Um, Speaking lovingly. And the language here is even maternal. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? That's going to show up again in verses 28 and 29 of this chapter when God says, has the rain a father or who has begotten the the drops of dew? There's paternal language there, but then he says, from whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth uh, to the frost of heaven? God is saying here, even the very chaos of the sea is mine, is my creature. It's not some equal and opposing force that I have to impose my will upon and hold back. I made it. I love it. I speak to it. And it does what I says. What I say. Let me ask, what is the invitation in this passage that's directed at us? What is it that we need to hear uh, in the midst of our own struggles, uh, in the midst of our own pain, uh, our, own, our own suffering? Jesus told his disciples a story um, when they were worrying, uh, when they were anxious, Uh, He reminded them that the same God who cares for the birds of the air and for the lilies of the field cares also for us. If he cares for the birds that way, for the flowers, if he cares for the sea, if the sea is his precious creation, how much more us? His invitation to see ourselves in that slideshow. Uh, that, God, that God would present. When, when God asked Job the question, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Later in the New Testament, we get a reminder from Paul of what it was that God was purposing, what it was that he was planning at the foundation of the earth. Remember this this is from the beginning of Ephesians, that really long run on sentence. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The invitation that's directed at us as we consider what God has said to Job and as we remember what it is that we're hoping for as we enter into the season of Advent the invitation is to not only see how much God loves Job, but to see who Job is pointing at. Um, Job has been asserting his innocence. Job has been asserting that he doesn't deserve uh, to suffer. Uh, Job has been demanding, excuse me, demanding that he not be cut off from the presence of God. He's pointing at one who came, who suffered, more than Job would suffer, who suffered truly innocently, who actually was cut off from God's presence. This one that Israel spent centuries waiting for, the Messiah, God Himself in the flesh, uh, would come in order to bear all of our weaknesses, to bear our sin, uh, and to pay the penalty for that sin. In order, uh, that if we put our faith in him, we wouldn't have to be ever cut off from God's presence. We could always know uh, ourselves to be God's precious children, uh, knit together as his people. Bradley and I are excited to be looking at this passage um, and at the others uh, as we enter into this season of Advent. Um, Hope is maybe one of the hardest emotions. Uh, It's one of the hardest things uh, to hold on to. Um, And so it's good that we have not only God's word, um, but also this table uh, to nourish our faith uh, and to bring us together each week. Uh, Before we come uh, and eat together, let's pray.